0: The Department of Homeland Security, the TSA, and the FBI have all gone together to compile a watch list. It's a list of suspected terrorists and suspicious individuals. If you board a plane, TSA screeners are going to check your name against the watch list. TSA takes this job seriously. No stone goes unturned. They're watching. They're watching you. Just ask eight-year-old Mikey Hicks, a New Jersey Cub Scout. You see, every time Mikey walks into an airplane, he's patted down by the TSA agents. The first time it happened, little Mikey was just two years old. More recently, the Hicks boarded a vacation flight to the Bahamas, but Mikey was detained. Supervisors were called in. Little Mikey was subjected to several passes of the X-ray wand. It disturbed the whole family. Mikey's mom commented afterwards, Up your arms, down your arms, up your crotch. Someone is patting your 8-year-old down like he's a criminal. A terrorist can blow up his underwear and not get caught. But my 8-year-old can't walk through security without being frisked? I think I would be upset too. With over 13,500 names on the TSA watch list, apparently the name Mikey Hicks... Sends off a red flag. It's pretty obvious the government doesn't profile passengers. Not many second graders are terrorists. It's odd that an eight-year-old Cub Scout is on the federal government's watch list. But here's where I'm going with this. If you're a Christian this morning, you also are on a watch list. You're listed on the world's watch list. Your name is there on the list. And it's not just an issue when you board an airplane. Follow Jesus and your life is going to be scrutinized 24-7. At home, at work, at school, at play, the world watches. Every day, you're being patted down. People have ways of frisking without touching, you know. They needle you. To see what you're going to say in return. They egg you on to see how far you'll go. They push your button just to see how you'll react. Welcome to life between the crosshairs. Hey, decide to be a serious Christian. Decide to live your life for Jesus. And your days of moving under the radar are over. A witness for Jesus is going to attract some heavy scrutiny. You see, inquiring minds want to know. They want to know about you. And here's why. As a Christian, we claim to have spiritual power. We claim a relationship with God. We claim to know personally Jesus Christ. Deep down inside, most people long for the same experience in their life. And that's why they push to examine you. They're looking for evidence that says to them, You're telling the truth. You see, if people like how we act, they'll want to know what makes us tick. Here's a very memorable quote. I don't want you to forget it. Most people who become a Christian do so because they know another Christian. Whereas most people who don't become a Christian do so because they know another Christian. True. Christianity's strongest endorsement and biggest deterrent are Christians. Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, We've learned that God has made us living stones. That He's given us a life that's animated by Jesus. That's rock solid. That's durable. Now He wants us to build our lives on the rock. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the linchpin in every area of my life. It's all connected to Him. How I do family and parenting and marriage and sex and career and money and play, and school, and food, and friends, it all leans on the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation and the inspiration of all that I do and all that I am. I stack all of my life on Him. He becomes crucial. In fact, pull Jesus out of my life, and it all crumbles like a house of cards. Jesus is the keystone. He is the cornerstone. Now, today's our third week here in chapter 2. In in week one, Peter said that we were made living stones. Week two, we're living on the rock. Now here in week three, Peter teaches us that we're also living in the world. Our lives are on display to this world. He writes here in verse 12, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We are on the world's watch list. And Jesus wants his followers in thought and in word and in deed to live in such a way that even our doubters will glorify God. First Peter teaches us that how we live our lives really does matter. And he addresses our conduct in three venues, as citizens, as servants, and as spouses. The rest of chapter 2 is about good citizenship, and then good servanthood, and then in chapter 3, we talk about being good spouses. Well, here's the key principle, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves. And when it comes to human interactions, the operative word for a Christian is this word, submit. Citizens should submit to the government. Servants or employees should submit to their masters or bosses. Wives should submit to their husbands. Even husbands should submit to their wives. Understand this virtue of submission, it derives from deep within the very nature of God. The triune God exists in submission. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all in submission to one another. The Son does the will of the Father. The Spirit testifies of the Son. All three work in total and in perfect submission. For us to exhibit an attitude of submission is to reflect the very image of God. Now this Greek word translated submit, it's a compound word. It's the word hupo it means to arrange under. Submission, you see, is the opposite of an independent life. It's an attitude and a lifestyle that accommodates and cooperates with other people. Christians are other-centered. Jesus died because he loves people. And his love will cause us to arrange our lives around the needs of others. You see, rather than a my way or the highway kind of person, a Christian is willing to take a step back or even a step down to let someone else step up. A Christian doesn't always have to beat out the other guy or be in charge or come in first. He desires to accommodate other people's needs. Here's a quiz that should sort of help you understand where you're at. Is your approach to life more cooperative or competitive? More cooperative or combative? You know, sometimes we think submission is the antithesis of leadership, but not so. Even Christian leaders should have a submissive bent. Don't give orders until you first learn to take orders. Rather than self-promotion, the goal of true leadership is serving others. Godly leadership is servant leadership. A Christian should submit, but submit to whom? And this is what Peter answers, he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Not only are we under God's law, but we're also supposed to submit to the laws of the land. One translation renders this word ordinance as human authorities, another as human institutions. Institutions. Submit yourselves to every human institution of man for the Lord's sake. The point is, as followers of Jesus, we should submit to anybody who occupies a position of authority. Emperor, or president, or senator, or governor, or county commissioner, or judge, or policeman, or building inspector, or teacher, or coach, or neighborhood association, or parents, And because I mentioned them last doesn't mean parents are least important. If you're living under your parents' roof, you're under their authority. Now before I go further, let me just acknowledge the concepts of authority and submission. In our country today are viewed by most Americans in a negative light. Most Americans disdain this whole idea of submitting to authority. It seems that Americans these days are trained to question everything and everyone. You see, we've seen so few examples of servant leadership. We're suspicious of anyone who aspires to a position of authority. We assume that they're just going to use that authority selfishly. And I've and I got to add, Americans are pretty arrogant as well. Ever notice that all talk show callers know more than the President of the United States and all of his advisors combined? Have you ever noticed that? Every Joe Blow who calls in on the talk show knows more than the President of the United States. How can that be? Every employee does a better job than their boss, don't they? Every employee can do it better than the guy who's, who's leading the way. Every teenager is smarter than his parents. <laughs> Just ask one. You know what it's called? It's called Pride. And this is, a, this is a human problem, but this is particularly an American problem. I think tragically, here's the all-American trait that hinders us. Rebellion to authority is in our DNA. Our nation was born in rebellion through a revolution. I think we rebel from time to time just to stay in practice in case a real revolution is ever needed again. Surely there are times when rebellion against authority is necessary. And the Bible is crystal clear in defining legitimate civil disobedience. When direct obedience to human authority causes us to disobey God's authority, that's when rebellion is not just appropriate, but it's mandatory. When the Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the male babies. Or when the Jewish Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. These were both examples of the proper time and place to disobey human authority. As Peter put it, we ought to obey God rather than man. When Corrie ten Boone hid Jews in her attic in defiance of the Nazis, or when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in the front of the bus to a white passenger, When an employee goes against the orders of his boss and refuses to lie to sell the product. When a Muslim teenager chooses to become a Christian even though it's forbidden by her parents to do so. These are all examples of appropriate disobedience to authority. Yet here's the deal. This coming week, very few of us are going to have to choose between obedience to God and obedience to man. Rather, 99% of the time, our lives are going to be conflict-free. Obeying God and obeying man are going to be congruent. Pay your taxes. Drive the speed limit. Limit your lunch to an hour, like it's supposed to be. That's why they call it a lunch hour. Do the homework your teacher assigns. If your boss has an opinion on what you're doing, pay attention. If your dad says, come home at 11.30, be home at 11.30. Don't buck the authority that God places in your life. Rather, submit. Peter says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Notice Peter says that government was sent to us by God. God. Think about this for a moment. The book club, the JCs, the dugout club, and the touchdown club are all human inventions. God created three institutions, and only three. He created marriage and a family, He created the church, and He created human government. Those three institutions were God's idea. Now, earlier in verse 9 Peter calls us a holy nation. He says that we're citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of the United States. Evangelist D.L. Moody, he summed up his views on Christian citizenship in a sentence. He put it this way, "Heaven is my home, but I vote in Cook County, Illinois." We are citizens in heaven and on earth. And according to verse 14, human government has two purposes. Notice this. For the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Every government has as its mission two things. To punish evil and to praise good. This means that the next time you turn a corner and you see a motorcycle cop sitting on the seat of his bike, pointing his radar gun directly at you, According to Peter, God put him there. God did. Now, sometimes I've wondered if God put him there at that exact moment, but God did. According to Peter, God put him there. God created government to keep order and to punish lawbreakers. We all know about government's efforts to punish. But recently I read about a novel police tactic being practiced in South Windsor, Connecticut... Traffic cops are pulling over cars and giving out tickets, but the tickets read, your driving was great and we appreciate it. The police there have been passing out $2 rewards for obeying the speed limit and wearing seat belts and using turn signals and the proper use of child safety restraints. They're also praising good. Carl Lomax, a resident of South Windsor, he wrote this, He said, you're always nervous when you see the police lights come on. It takes a second or two to adjust to the officer saying, thanks a lot for obeying the law. It's about the last thing you would expect. Well, I imagine so. But I do hope this catches on in Gwinnett County. And particularly in the city of Snellville. Hey, keeping the peace with a little positive reinforcement, I think we should give it a try. Peter goes on to say, though, here in verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. You know, as a Christian, I'm free from the opinions and the judgments of other people. And we rejoice in this. Hey, since I'm accepted by God, I don't need anybody else's approval. It really doesn't matter what you think about me in that regard. And yet some Christians use this freedom as an excuse to live a careless and a reckless life. I might not need your approval, but as a representative of Jesus, I need to care about the impression that I'm making on you and the people around me. My life should be an ad for godliness. And this is why a Christian needs to be a more conscientious citizen. And he or she needs to be a nicer neighbor and needs to be a better person. By caring about what other folks think, I can shut up the critic. And I can add to the common good. And I can glorify God. And verse 17 even tells us, honor all people. Honor all people. There was a God Post article a while ago. Joanne Jones wrote of her experience in in her nursing school. She says, during my second year, our professor gave us a pop quiz. I breezed through the questions until I read the last one. What is the first name of the woman who cleans the school? Surely this was some kind of a joke. I'd seen the cleaning woman, but how would I know her name? I handed in my paper, leaving the last question blank. Before the class ended, a student asked if... The last question counted toward our grade. The professor replied, Absolutely. In your career, you'll meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care even if all you do is smile and ask their name. Joanne wrote, I've never forgotten that lesson. I also learned our cleaning woman's name, Dorothy. Do you honor all people? Every person you have or will ever lay eyes on, every person you come in contact with in this lifetime was made in God's image and was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you realize that? That makes everybody you meet worthy of honor and respect. Even the obnoxious, frustrating person in your life. You know they have a story. They do. You know, there are reasons people do what they do. And if you understood their particular reasons, you might be a whole lot more compassionate toward them. Everybody has a story. And we honor all people when we take time to learn their story. Well, Peter also adds, love the brotherhood. Honor all people, love the brotherhood. When you become a Christian, you get God as your father and... Me as your brother. Oh boy. We're members of God's family. Black and white, red and yellow, legal and illegal, employed and unemployed and underemployed. We all live in the same hood. We're in the brotherhood. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, you can choose your friends but not your family. Well, that's also true of your spiritual family. And I'm afraid some of you, I watch some of you. And some of you are sort of like spiritual teenagers. You know how teenagers are. They're embarrassed to be seen with their, their parents. You know, they get out of the car three blocks away so they can, won't be seen getting out of their car with their parents. You know how teenagers are. Some of you are like spiritual teenagers. You're embarrassed by the rest of the family of God. We're not cool enough for your friends. You avoid us. You rush out after church so you won't be seen with us in public. Well, here's a great question. Rather than grumble and complain about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather than shop around and try to find a church more fitting to your social standing. Rather than fuss with your fellow church members. Try this. Love the brotherhood. They might just love you back. And then Peter writes, fear God. Fear God. Respect and reverence God's authority above all others. Why? Because all authority is derived from God's authority. God is the one who gives sanction to human authority, to kings and parents and police and husbands and pastors. In submitting to any form of authority, our first priority is to fear God. And then Peter writes, honor the king. In our case, Uncle Sam can use some Christian brothers Honor the king. This includes honest tax returns, keeping up your emissions, driving 55, adhering to the building codes, watering your lawn only on days allowed, pulling over for a fire truck, thanking a soldier. These are all ways that in our day and in our land, we can honor the king. And understand, it's easier today than it was in Peter's situation. The king of Rome in 60 AD was an evil tyrant named Nero. He was godless and lewd and barbaric. He was a madman drunk on power. And he hated Christians. He dipped us in wax and used us as human torches to light his parties. He fed us to the lions. He led us to the arena to be slaughtered for sport by the gladiators. Nero was a dishonorable fellow. And yet Peter says of him, Honor the king. I think Peter, if he were here, he would tell us, if you can't honor the king's character, you can at least respect the uniform. You can at least honor his position. Remember, Peter says this about the man who would end up ordering his crucifixion. And if he can do that, I suppose that we can find some honor for our elected officials as well. Well, in verse 18, the operative word here is still submit, but now Peter applies it to the servants and the masters, or in our case, employees and bosses. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Understand, a Christian employee is a servant. Jesus told his disciples, the greatest among you is the servant of all. A Christian at work needs to be as good and faithful and effective an employee as possible, regardless of what kind of boss oversees his work. If you've got a crabby, mean-spirited boss who tries to make your life miserable, then it's your option to leave and find another job, certainly. But as a Christian, it's not your option to slough off and put out a half-hearted effort. You see, in Peter's day, employees, they didn't have the option to jump from job to job. Workers were often indentured servants. Sometimes they were even slaves. In fact, in Old Testament Israel and in the Roman Empire of Peter's day, slavery was not the same institution that it became in the 18th and 19th centuries later. Later, slavery targeted Free Africans who were violently stole from their families and taken overseas. They and their ancestors became another man's property. This was an abomination. And I have no doubt if this was the type of slavery common in the first century, New Testament writers would have spoken out in opposition. But in ancient times, slavery often had a redeeming purpose. Rather than racially targeted, it was more a financial vehicle. It was a means of bankruptcy for many people. It was a way that a poor person could work off his debts. He would sell himself into slavery, and he would work until he became solvent again. Often, he did better working for his master than he did on his own, and he even chose to remain a slave. Historian Murray Davis, he says that Greek and Roman slaves were often more educated than their masters. And were never segregated from the society. And usually they weren't slaves for long. Slaves participated in and contributed to the culture at large. Again, they were more like employees than what we think of as slaves. And as Christians, it was their calling to be faithful and to be diligent servants. In fact, he writes in verse 19, he says, For this is commendable If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. He talks about this situation. And this can happen in a fallen world. A child of God can get a raw deal. Christians are not immune. You can do your job. You can work hard. You can be faithful. And you can still get treated spitefully. Someone might be jealous of you. You might get persecuted for Jesus' sake, but it can happen. I'll never forget walking out to my car out in the church parking lot one evening and in, in, in walking out and finding that it had been shelled with raw eggs. I was in the church teaching the Word and serving the Lord while someone drove through the parking lot and egged my car. Well, I immediately started trying to figure out who this was. think, well, where has Pastor James been all day? <laughs> what did I do to upset the secretaries? I mean, who had a grievance here? Finally, I concluded that I had just been, I had just suffered wrongfully. I'd been persecuted for Jesus' sake. Someone had got angry at the message and took it out on the messenger. You know, they'd egg the postman, so to speak. But on my way home that night, as I drove through the car wash up here at the BP, I wanted to clean off the egg, you know, before it settled on the car. And and, uh, as I was cleaning it off, suddenly it hit me. These vandals just cost me $5. I had to pay $5 for the car wash. And I started to cop an attitude. God, here I am serving you, and it cost me $5 out of my pocket. And at that exact moment, guess who came on the radio? Let's listen to the radio, you know, as I was sitting in the car. Guess who came on the radio? I did. I did. It was one of those 30-second spots that we were doing at the time that were highlighting, highlighting one of the eight Beatitudes. And guess which Beatitude rolled up in the rotation as I'm sitting in the car getting the egg cleaned off of my car? Guess which one? Matthew 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. It was wild. I was reminding myself to rejoice over my heavenly reward. I never thought God would allow me to have a radio ministry so I could minister to me. The story did have a happy ending. The person who threw the eggs eventually came forward and apologized and today I consider them a friend. And yet the lesson I learned that night is still true. There are times when God allows His kids to endure grief and to suffer wrongfully. It's not your fault. You were just trying to do good. You were just trying to serve God and it comes back to bite you. What's with that? Did you know that We can get hurt while doing good? We can. And we get tempted to throw in the towel. Who needs this hassle? For a pastor, this is an occupational hazard. It happens often. But it also happens to all Christians. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it eventually will. And when it does, I want you to remember Peter's logic. He says, For what credit is it If when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Remember that logic. You know, there's a big distinction. There's a huge difference between suffering for righteousness' sake or for Jesus' sake and suffering for being a jerk. Did you know this? It's a big difference. I know Christians who, who are basically self-righteous and pompous and prideful and unloving and their coworkers or their la- neighbors, they sort of laugh at them. Oh, look at those hypocrites. And, and yet the slight or the insult causes the hypocrite to stick out his chest even further and claim to be persecuted for Jesus' sake. You're not being persecuted for Jesus' sake. You're being persecuted because you're a jerk. There's nothing commendable about that. Christianity takes a black eye whenever a hypocritical Christian sulks about like they're a martyr when they're really just a dweeb. Rejoice if you're persecuted for being a saint. Repent if you're persecuted for being a snob. And then verse 21 tells us, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And here he quotes Isaiah 53. Who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Here is the example that Jesus has left for you and me. I want you you to remember this. Jesus was a shock absorber. Jesus was a shock absorber. Jesus allowed the rage to end with him. Now the world we live in specializes in swapping insult for insult. Have you noticed that we live in an angry world? There's a lot of angst built up in this world. The boss takes out his frustrations on old Joe and slaps him around at work. And then Joe comes home and he verbally slaps around his kids. And then his boys go out and they start slapping around the neighbor's kids. And the whole world is just plain slap happy. Why? Because hatred passes from person to person until it comes to the Christian. For we have been called to imitate our Lord Jesus. When he was reviled, when he was insulted... We didn't revile in return. When Jesus was slapped, He refused to slap back. When He suffered, He didn't threaten retaliation. Jesus absorbed the angst. When the frustration of sin and the fallout from a fallen world reverberated back at Jesus in the form of the cross, Jesus returned love for hate. He absorbed the slaps. Rather than respond with the back of his hand, Jesus extended an outstretched hand. Jesus showed mercy to the merciless. And as his disciples, so should we. If you're being slapped around by people or by circumstances, I'm not suggesting you just suck it up and invite a bloody nose. To the contrary. I think it's time for you to fight back. But not as a slapper. No, no, no. Go for the knockout. When the world slaps at you, you deck them with love. Fight evil with good. You see, weak people have to retaliate to show their strength. But real strength, Jesus' strength, absorbs the blow and then transforms its impact into the opposite response. Jesus retaliated in love. And he's calling his followers to do the same. On the cross, Jesus was a shock absorber, but that's not all that he did. He generated some shock waves of his own. Notice verse 24 adds, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness. You know, today the popular treatment for addictive behavior is the 12-step program, but God has a one-step program. It's called the cross. On the cross, Jesus put an end to our sin. We were crucified with Christ. He bore our sin in His own body. But notice, it's not the sin that dies. You know, so often we pray that God will kill the fleshly lust, the out-of-control desire that torments us. But it's not the sin that dies. It's us that dies to the sin. You see, God gives us victory by changing us. Sin isn't any less attractive to a Christian, but when a person becomes a Christian, they're less attracted to the sin. In the temptation situation, we want God to remove the temptation so often. We want Him to make the temptation less tempting. We're focused on the wrong end of the temptation. God's solution is to purify me, to change my identity and my desires. As Peter puts it, we've died to sins so that we can live for righteousness. In other words, the more I'm focused on who I am in Christ and what Jesus did for me, the stronger my identity grows, righteous desires begin to replace unrighteous ones in my life. I begin to think new thoughts. I become a new person. The cross is the cure-all. It's God's one-step approach. And then Peter even reminds us, by His stripes... You were healed. The blows absorbed in Jesus' body have become the antidote for our sin and our sickness. Do Do you understand how a vaccine works? It's a weakened form of the germ itself. And the body fights against the vaccine and builds up the immunity in preparation for contracting the actual disease. This is how our healing works as well. Sins... Pain and suffering was absorbed by the body of Jesus as if it were a vaccine. The hurt inflicted on Jesus creates healing through Jesus. Pain absorbed is now love released. And His wounds end up producing our well-being. I love how the chapter here closes. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd." and the overseer of your souls. Throughout the Bible, Christians are compared to sheep. For probably many reasons, but obviously the primary reason is that sheep are dumb. And we can be too. You know, sheep will follow each other over a cliff if you let them. And we like dumb sheep. We lost our way. We went astray. Thankfully, Jesus found us. And now he says he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This means that you are on a watch list. As we've talked about, the world is watching you, they're scrutinizing your life. They want to find evidence for God in your life. When you submit to human authority, you point to God's authority. By honoring people, you fear the Lord. By working hard, you prove you serve a higher boss. By enduring unfair treatment, you represent a Savior who died unjustly. You're on the watch list. You make, need to make sure that folks see Jesus in you. But you're also on another watch list. And this gets real exciting. For we're told in the last verse, the shepherd of our soul, he has his sights on you. Notice he calls himself the overseer. That means Jesus is watching you. You're on his watch list, but not to pick you apart. He wants to pick you up. He's not trying to analyze and scrutinize. He wants to save and to heal. Both God and man are watching you. That's why we need to live in submission to both. Father, thank you.